Anyway, um, make sure you're on silent and all that jazz. Boom. So, welcome back again to Projecting. Gotta say, really impressive. Um, obviously, I'm just amazing at everything because so many more of you listen, so I'll take full credit. Uh, no, for, ser- for, for real though, the, um, I think as of today, Scott and I's episode had almost, has over 175 listens, which is awesome. Um, you shut up, Freezer. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's awesome. Thank you all so much for listening. It's been, that, was, that was really cool to see all that support. Um, and I think we're basically going to continue where we left off. I'm going to move the mic a little bit. Uh, we'll continue where we left off. Uh, we had a really good discussion going about Scott's thesis. We had to cut it off because poor Ann Marshall was waiting on me. <laughs> and um, yeah, so... Where we were last, well, I guess before we get into it, oh, just a bit of thing with the last few days was we just had our sister's engagement luncheon, getting ready to Taylor. That's so crazy. Just getting ready yeah, to Taylor. The first of the four. Jesus Christ. And she, um, we had lunch, all this stuff yesterday, and God, it actually just occurred to me. I got off set at 5.30 in the morning, went to bed, woke up for that. I was dead tired, but um, God, we were all out together till... For, we, we made our way back to the parents' house, kind of rallied. Drinking in our family's marathon. Yeah, drinking in, yeah, I was going to say, drinking our family's marathon. And then we wound up, <laughs> it was just like, we, we just had that nice lunch. With, um, then we had some drinks at the house, and then we all made our way down to the French Quarter. And uh, I think we wound up with Reginelli's. <laughs> but it was a good night, and, uh, you know. 12 hours with the family and, and good no one home. strangled anyone so that's good it's good to be home yeah. <laughs> and then I just had Scott watch Kung Fury today second time mentioned this podcast I was born point. a decade too late <laughs> it's just so <laughs> when when the arcade machine comes to life it starts flicking everyone off shooting lasers <laughs> So that's what, I think that's when you started to lose it. <laughs> Pretty sure that's the moment. <laughs> that or I don't know. Actually, the opening scene with the skateboard the police car. <laughs> Scott Scott was in the middle of sipping coffee. He starts choking on it. He starts dying laughing, and I pause it. He's he's just motioning to pause it, and as soon as he regains breath, he goes, "Rewind it ten seconds." <laughs> <laughs> And it erupts again the second time. It's ridiculous. So now um, Scott can join Niels and all of us in the glorious people who've seen all that is good in Kung Fury. So, Scott, the thesis. Last we were talking, uh, you talked a little about Passage, and um, I'm sure I just pronounced it incorrectly. But um, there's no Passage in the... uh, we talked about you know the manumission laws and how that affected race uh, racial relations here in Louisiana, especially in New Orleans. The transfer of power of Spanish to French, which I embarrassed myself and how I said how briefly the Spanish controlled, and I was dead wrong. Uh, so, eh, start, you know, the more history you know, the less dates you know, right? Fewer. Oof, God, grammar and history blowing it. So, <laughs> so where we were next headed into. We were starting to make our way into the antebellum period, right? So a little, you want to give a little recap of what we talked about last was... Uh... Yeah, I think when you look at Louisiana's history, one of the ways that you, you know, one of the aspects of it that's oftentimes left out of the history books is how we are, at least culturally and historically and 
commercially linked into the Caribbean. So when you're looking at places like Saint-Domingue, which was colonial Haiti, you had these all of these confluence of, you know, of the, through the slave trade, through colonialization, forming these institutions that become known as Creole within the Caribbean, and those ideas were brought to Louisiana. And it became the genesis of this larger Creole identity in Louisiana, this entire culture that really drove the state for centuries and is what a lot of the state's culture, even that we talk about today, is built into. Right, and you kind of feel that part of your thesis arguing that we've lost a little touch with that. We've kind of lost that historical sense very recently. Well, I actually, there's a book that I read recently. It's called, it's by Edward Baptist called The Half Has Never Been Told. And it's about, it's talking a lot of it. We were all Googling this together (laughs) with our sister. And like, it was like rappers, that autobiographies, (laughs) no, some DJ's autobiography with this like ridiculous photo. All these, it's it's just a common phrase. If you look it up, a lot of hilarity ensues. The book, the actual book is about, is an economic history. And it's arguing, looking at the slave trade through the lens of capitalism. But a lot of it, what's talked about, has to do with Louisiana as well. But I think what is brilliant about the idea when you're talking about Creole Louisiana is that the half has never been told in the sense that you have this entire culture that is connected to a much larger Caribbean and European world that because of how its history played out in the 19th century has been largely for you know just left out of the history books to the point that black Creoles in Louisiana's history are quote-unquote the forgotten people well who wants to forget it? Specific interests, specific groups, and that has to do with the politics of race in the South and with the development of Jim Crow at the end of the 19th century. So I think to understand Creole Louisiana is to actually unearth and understand who we are today in Louisiana and a lot of the modern debates that we have about race, about our economy, about everything that you know drives our society. I guess one area in where we were leaving off last time is understanding as Louisiana's coming in to the United States is that you have these groups that are not exactly on board with becoming part of the United States. And one of the ways that that plays out locally is you're going to have the very large black Creole, free black Creole population in New Orleans for the reasons that we were talking about last time, high rates of manumission. Um, institutions such as Plasage in which people are allowed to at least informally get married and bequeath wealth and what this what this creates is a completely different racial structure than what the Americans are used to dealing with and what they are used you as they're moving out west they're absorbing new people into the United States who are not part of what was developing along the eastern seaboard of the United States So when the first administration comes to Louisiana, they're very perplexed by this group of people, by the Creoles, and how assertive black Creoles were within the system. And so they have a hard time first adjusting that, and so they actually end up being somewhat more authoritative towards the state, to which the Creole population that's within the state protests very strongly against the American government. So initially you have a lot of political discord between Creoles and between Americans, just like you had upriver in places like Missouri, where the Creole population started being absorbed and you know actually drowned out by the migration of Anglo-Americans into the new territories. But what happens is that in southern Louisiana, 
you have a such a high concentration of French-speaking Creoles, white and black Creoles within the region, that they're able to hold on to power for decades, all the way up into the Civil War. So recognizing what was going on upriver, and they have a lot of correspondences between each other, a lot of articles being published in newspapers, which is where you can you know figure out where a lot of this information is coming from. And they're what are some of the papers that you found a lot of information? Because I remember we. When you were doing a lot of this research, you know, yeah. the historic memorials collection turned out to be really valuable. Yeah. And so you're looking at La Bay and all that? Well, even earlier <coughs> than that, you have Le Courrier de la Louisiane, and you had the, the Moniteur de Louisiane, which, interestingly... Oh, the Monitor. Okay. The Monitor, I believe, was started by Saint-Domingue refugees. So and it has mm. still to do with, you know, bringing over the free... You know, bringing over yeah. the press and sort of that voice. Was the Daily Picayune and the Times Democrat around at this point? They come, if I recall correctly. They were nineteenth, mid nineteenth century. I yeah, but I think here. they started. It took a little while for really the. Actually, they just had that hundred seventy five year rotation going. So, yeah, they would like be just starting around then. Yeah, so maybe eighteen twenties. Abbe de Louis de um, de la Nouvelle Orléans, the the B, uh, which is a very prominent newspaper, and I think it lasted from the eighteen twenties until the nineteen twenties. So it's early as well. All in, a, and also this is all in Creole French. Well, in French. No, it was French. Yeah, it's in French. French. It was, yeah, it was Creole proper would be a French. Different. My bad. Well, it. What's sorry? Proper, quote unquote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Par- Parisians everywhere just swooned. I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, understanding Creole as a legitimate sourced language yes. that comes to the United States <laughs> and has its roots within our culture and what we need, but, but, what in. When the Creoles start developing and they become a state and they're annoyed that their entire territory is not a state, but then they recognize that they need to entrench their interests, it's exactly what a group that's in power that looks abroad and goes, well, we're kind of surrounded, did, duh, would do. They build the entire political system to protect themselves. So they create, they essentially freeze the population or representation in regions as to what the population was then, which means that Creole areas get a lot more representatives at all times. And then they pumped power into the executive branch. And what year is this? So this is 1815, 1812 when the states, gotcha. and then they're passing the first constitution and they're trying to... And so they're basically the, the, the people up high who are Creole are basically making legal moves to consolidate, not consolidate power, but to reshore kind of yeah. shore up their power yeah. because they knew there's going to be an influx of people that was going to threaten it. So they're trying to make is, moves ahead of time. And this is really the is first time right? that they're able to have full control over the, the their area because the reality is under Spanish rule, they started building influence, but then they never had it fully because it's a colonial system. The United States is the first time that although they're... There's like a relative system of power. Yeah, they, so they can now develop their own state government. And what what is that state going to look like? It's going to look... Like it, it's going to look Creole, it's going to look French, and it's going to look it's going to entrench their power as a player, as a planter aristocracy within the state, and that's what they do. That's what they develop. And so the one of the big issues, and this is where you start seeing really the fracture between Anglo American society as it starts moving into Louisiana. As people are coming down the river, they want to exchange, you know, really start doing commerce and living within the state. And the Creole population is actually over the light, you know, the levers of power, which is always going to be a big issue. And so the Anglo Americans feel locked out. They don't feel like they're part. So they can see they're very aware that the Creoles are like kind of putting their own barriers up. Yeah, they're putting up the Creole leadership, like leadership. 
girls, not like yeah. all of Creole. So you're right. Creole. If you're done. arriving, <laughs> if you're arriving down the river, I don't think that's my building. <laughs> I'm gonna pause it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna pause for one second. And we're back. Someone's cooking. Set off the alarm. <laughs> anyway, so please continue, Scott. Because yeah. so they came, Anglo Americans came down and found that though it wasn't their relationship wasn't being facilitated. Yes. <laughs> so you can imagine you've arrived in Louisiana. You have this region that has a very large free black population, when the rest of the United States has much smaller communities and is in fact. Uh, tightening the definition of racialized slavery within the United States that becomes a hallmark of the antebellum South. So when they arrive in the city and you have the contention between Creoles and Americans, Creoles not exactly enthusiastic that people are coming down, what they do is the Anglo-Americans, they're kind of blocked out of what's historically the heart of New Orleans, which is the French Quarter, which everyone today, you know, Bourbon Street and everything like that. But that neighborhood was originally where Creole Louisiana, where the Creoles were living in Louisiana, or living at least in the New Orleans area. And so what they do is they kind of, they, they don't, it's not a, a, it's not that people are forced out of the French Quarter, it's that they, as a rough pattern of development, they build in this area that's called the Faubourg Saint Marie which is corresponds with the modern central business district of New Orleans. So you can actually still go today, and if you go to Canal Street and you're standing in the middle of New Orleans, right? if you were to look, if you're looking up towards the lakes, if you look out, you know, over towards the French Quarter, all the street names are in French. Now there are kind of pronunciation of French now. Chartres is actually Charter Street. Burgundy is... Burgundy. Burgundy. And if you look to over towards our the central business district it changes to St. Charles it changes to Barone and to Carondelet and all these different things uh, that the name is that division is still very obvious even in the it's imprinted on the physical landscape of the city today so what we have going into the 1820s and the 1830s is as Louisiana becomes increasingly uh, increasingly wealthy and this has to do with New Orleans as the major port city at the bottom of the Mississippi as the United States is moving westward. It has to do with the city's importance as a slave trading center and it is very much engaged in the slave economy and what we don't talk about a lot of in the United States is we associate um, the Atlantic slave trade and boats coming into the United States and you know and the slave trade happening in that facet but a lot of the way that the slave trade operated in the United States is the domestic slave trade so the upper south um, was sort of transitioning its economy during this period as the quote-unquote western states back then which really was Mississippi Alabama Kentucky Louisiana were opening up so there's this mass migration in which thousands upon thousands of people died but also forced migration of millions of slaves at, into uh, areas surrounding uh, New Orleans so Louisiana New Orleans particularly is becoming incredibly wealthy during this period to the point that it becomes during the antebellum period so we're talking the 1830s the 1840s 1850s it becomes probably one of the richest cities in the world and all of the areas around us were also very, very wealthy. So as New Orleans is simultaneously 
it's still one city at this point, but you have Creoles living in one rough side of the city with the Saint-Domingue refugees living along with the Creoles, and they start creating the Faubourg Marigny, the Faubourg Treme, which is where a lot of black Creoles live, and it's above the French Quarter. And then you this have is a, all, yeah, this is all along the river. You know, you have your Crescent City as this kind of horseshoe going on. And all along there, as you move the French Quarter in downtown is the original city, essentially. And as you make your way uh, east, yeah, as you make your way east along the river, you're seeing these communities crop up along the river. And um, that's first is the Marigny and then the Bywater and all these areas. Right, the Treme. So, yeah. yeah, the Treme right. is northward a little bit. I mean, northward, <laughs> relatively speaking, we're talking like a mile. Like it's, not, it's not. It's like there's a. It's it basically the French Quarter becomes, goes right to the Treme. Mm-hmm. So, and you, and one of the things that you start recognizing, at least on the physical imprint of the city, is that the Anglo side of New Orleans starts looking a lot more like your traditional Southern cities. They start looking a little bit more like Charleston, and it's still infused with the architecture of the region because you're never divorcing it, and you're not. But you have more neoclassical. You have a lot of these types of buildings being erected that you would understand to be in places like Savannah or Charleston. And that still is what a lot of these places look like, especially as the Anglo part of the city grew into the Garden District. It becomes very, very apparent. And you made an interesting point about how like a lot of people who came from Saint-Domingue, you, you could look at some of these old Creole cottages and it's like carbon copies yeah. of what they were building out there. Yeah. I mean, you can, some of these houses still stand. I mean, it's, if you had a photo from each of those places that houses look virtually the same yeah. it's a lot of where our color for uh, yeah. bright color palettes come from and too. that's on the creole side of the city yeah that's, creole it's, it's an interesting america so yeah. the that's the interesting thing is the physical landscape of the city starts to change as you have the two groups as your antebellum architecture is cropping up in the yeah. anglo-american side with your those houses we see uptown in the garden district all those those beautiful neoclassical yeah. styles and the, the where it's columns and the, yeah. the large porches and and so the Beautiful Creole French side of the city maintains the architecture from the Caribbean, adapts it. And one of the fascinating things that starts to develop is as plantations are, are you know, the mainstay of the economy of the region, and as it was across the south, but particularly along the river, you wanted that coveted space along the river for you to be able to trade, uh, to be able to get goods and trade goods and move your, get the cotton move your bulk or sugar even in part sugar, of the area. Yeah, yeah. But one of the things that is interesting is if you were to see even today is there are a lot of homes, if it was Anglo-American or someone you know who created a plantation, it looks a lot like other Southern plantations. And if it was a Creole, it's, it's very obviously looks like Caribbean, West Indies um, plantations. And that has to do with these people, these two groups are never subdividing the space on exact terms it's not all until much later it's not one half versus the other they're occupying the same space but they're doing it and building it in the image that they want it to look like so they're quite literally changing the physical landscape of the region to meet the demands of what they want their culture to represent and that becomes it's in very odd it's something that's very unique for the antebellum south in some ways i mean i I think there's always culture moving in and out but to have these two groups with very separate identities sitting side by side trying to navigate virtually no common root i mean no i mean the grand sense of history of the common root but i mean these are groups that are so divorced of each other culturally i mean they really historically yeah and they're coming from two very different regions and from two di- very different mentalities. And so, and the, not only that, the Creoles, you have the fact that it's, some were like straight from off the boat France, and then others were French colonial refugees after a revolution who yeah. were black and, yeah. and some white. I mean, it's just the, the, yeah. even that two division is so yeah. muddied. 
It's yeah. so like it's so complex. Yeah. And so we'll move the story along, but the what happens is on the Creole side of the city, they you do not have residential segregation in many in any real terms. That you have to a certain degree that there are areas where white Creoles live and that's typically in the French Quarter. But black Creoles are not barred from the area. So as black Creoles are allowed to engage in commerce, they start and then through things like we were talking about plissage, each generation, you know, if, if they engage in plissage, can get more wealth. They invest that wealth. They buy more land. They engage in commerce. They buy their own plantations. And to a certain degree, and it's sometimes overblown historically, but some of them engaged in the slave trade as well and that's because that's what the dominant mode of economy was yeah. at the it time. wasn't like it wasn't like tens of thousands of creoles no. were trafficking and hundreds of slaves it yeah. wasn't like this massive industry but there were instances of that for sure yeah. and they own property you know they're they're trying to own you know become their own in their own right they're the sort of if, if the primary mode of wealth is through land and through sugar production or cotton production or engaged in commerce and trade, you're gonna use you, know, you use the system which is a slave system around you. But what does start to happen during the antebellum period, very atypical of other areas, is that the Black Creole population, because it is a very high percentage of the Creole side of the city, becomes very economically powerful. And this is as Anglo Louisiana starts growing. They're able to get. They're becoming wealthier. They're starting, at least in the New Orleans area, to increase their numbers quite significantly, particularly by the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s. And part of that reason, and why the Anglo side of the city starts becoming very large, is because as you have waves of immigrants, whether they're from Germany or other, we had other migrations uh, coming in. These are not cultures that would necessarily identify with the Creole side of the city or they're the much more Creole culture. To identify the Anglo American. And they're coming to America and they want to, you know, they, they're identifying. And it's also a little bit more, in some ways, an open culture, just in the sense that you move to this new part of the city, you set up shop, and you kind of move on. And so the Creoles maintain a demographic majority in the city, probably through about the 1840s, maybe early 1850s. But their relative power to what they held on to is starting to wane. But they still have structured the state government to be powerful. Like 30 years prior, yeah. And but the reason that this becomes very important is because for black Creoles who are starting to be able to educate their children in religious schools, even have some public schools available to them, they're able to send their children, a lot of them send their children to France to be educated as they uh, gain more wealth. They come back, they partake in, the, you know, in, in commerce. And as the rest of the South, because of a lot of causal factors about slave rebellions and by the restriction of slavery into new territories, starts actually making slavery a lot more strict in the way that they normally, um, they normally would, when there would be a, sim a restraint on slavery in the South, you normally would attack the free black population. And normally what was levied against free black populations in places like Charleston and other areas was that they were going to instigate a great slave rebellion. And in Louisiana, the demographic, you know, the way it works is that the Creoles, as I've mentioned before, the white Creole population has an incentive of having large groups of people who identify through the Francophone identity of the state. The black Creoles are economically influential and are able to lobby on the Creole, you know, Creole legislature, not politically be active necessarily, but just lobby. Um, they would get their interests at least heard. Yeah. And so what happens is other states keep restricting and restricting the rights of free blacks. Louisiana really moves away from that. We, we 
a lot of the restrictions on property rights, a lot of the restrictions on education are foregone. They're, they're not allowed to happen, or they don't happen at least statewide. And this is me being extra defensive because I'm always worried about this. It's not, and you're not, you're not arguing that like Louisiana was this paradise. Of course, you're not. No, that. And I think, absolutely. I think not. it's important for people to realize that's like, this is less about like, oh, look how wonderful black people were treated in New Orleans and Louisiana. It's more that there's this incredible divorce happening in the way we view blacks in America. It was this idea of as as the numbers grew throughout the country. We dealt with it, Louisiana dealt with it in a very specific way that was distinct from the rest of the country. And then the idea of being Creole informed those decisions as well. Would you say that's probably a Yeah, fair and way as to I say mentioned it? before, I mean understanding that the you know, the moral system of slavery is evil, I mean, unto itself. Sure. I mean, sure. You know, understanding that to be the fundamental premise. I know we sound like overly defensive. I'm just like but I think it's always important in these discussions like be very clear. It's like, oh, they're treated better. It's like not that it was good. <laughs> or, or that but also right. under, you know, that we understand that that's the moral premise from which we can have a, a discussion exactly. about it's, what's it's going a discussion on. Of relativity, and right. you're also talking, you know, in terms of it's also a commentary though in the United States about how things kind of shifted at times that it wasn't always yeah. you know this inevitable progression towards Jim Crow yeah. that there were spaces there were being, alternatives there were alternatives there were spaces being restricted and they were in most importantly is that there was a lot of activism in black communities yeah. whether it's black creole or african american to st- to stop this to, you know to stop a lot of these processes from happening and for very key periods of time you're able to stop it in in some fashion so in Creole, Louisiana, is that you have the restrictions going into the 1820s, 1830s. A lot of them are, are either delayed, unenforced, or never passed in the way that places like Virginia and South Carolina were passing to restrict the free black population, which normally these laws kind of come in bulk after a failed slave, you know, after a slave rebellion. Right. And because it's it just fears, it's reactionary policymaking. Or some like Matt, like a legal thing where like yeah. someone gets to a a free state and goes for rights. You know, it's always, everything's reactionary. Yeah. So you start having, you have this interesting paradox within the Creole community that you have, a lot of its cultural institutions are somewhat protected. You have French education, you have the Catholic Church, which is dominant on the Creole side of the city. You have a lot of the arts and opera that are sort of being inspired by a lot of French, uh, you know, French opera and it, it some of it, they even have a lot of cases in the 1840s where operas would choose to debut in Louisiana rather than even Paris and then they would run the circuit through Europe so Louisiana during this period is culturally a part of the French world in an important way we are producing French literature we are producing music that's in French we are producing operas that are in French we are you know absorbing operas that are in French and that means that just in the way that we talk about Montreal as being French-speaking, but not of France. New Orleans is French-speaking, but not necessarily of France. We are educating a lot of our children in France during this period, especially if you are of means. But it's also a time in which the city is incredibly wealthy and can afford to be having a lot of this cross-cultural exchange. And because of that, you have when France oftentimes would go through revolutions during this period, the 1820s, 30s, and 40s were pretty difficult times in French political history. You would have a lot of people, uh, political refugees from France, also come to Louisiana. So there's a lot of the people who would become politically active within Louisiana and some of our governors were actually born in France and of sometimes of, you know, just of wealthy backgrounds, but moved to the state in some way. But 
on the broader picture of things as they're developing is as Anglo-Americans are moving in, you have this immigration, the, the uh, newer parts of the city, the St. Marie neighborhood, the um, Garden District are becoming larger compared to the Creole side of the city. In the 1820s and the, really by the 1830s, the Creoles start again feeling under threat. So what they do in 1836 is they actually split New Orleans into three different cities. And one of the things that we don't think about when we often talk about that division in New Orleans is that you know we act as if the Creoles wanted to leave the Americans and the Americans wanted to leave the Creoles. But the, Cre the Americans coming into the city felt that they had such little political say over the state, the functioning of the state, that they actually wanted to divide New Orleans as well. Because they're thinking, well, at least if we get our half of the city, we can govern it and we, we can, can do what we want with yeah, it. Yeah, and the Creoles actually refused to pave the roads for a while on the, on the, on the American side of the city. So you have these really nice buildings being constructed for commerce, but the road's not even paved. So and it was sort of this political back and forth. And so by 1836, you do have the division of the city and you have two Creole sides. You have the French Quarter that represents a district. You have uh, Downriver uh, over in the Marigny and other areas that also represent a Creole district. And then you have the American district that's going upriver. And this gives you a sense of how that's, you know, space was being navigated is in when the city divided by 1845 and the Creole side of the city you had public education for black Creoles which is really interesting because that's almost unparalleled at least in the south you also have 85 percent of the free black population in New Orleans in in the New Orleans area which is one of the highest numbers in the country living on the Creole side of the city rather than the Anglo side. So they're it understands that even though these two areas and these cities are in very close proximity and it's all technically New Orleans, they are the, 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 the difference in terms of how you can navigate and you can engage in commerce, your allowed education and you know, your ability to be sort of un, unimpeded to a certain degree is such that they, they people the black Creole community concentrates in the Creole side of the city for all of the antebellum period. So on a macro, so when you're going into the, once the city's divided, it starts a slow decline though of the Creole side of the city. They just the, they don't have as much money. They're they're doing relatively well because the economy of the region's doing well. But it's just as the rest of the state, as the rest of the city really on the Anglo side is just really growing. Commerce is starting to be concentrated there. It kind it's not in a full full decline, but it just is not able to compete. Where are you getting some of these stats from? Well, I'm just curious, a, like, you're talking about, like, a lot the of them. Yeah. Are you talking like, like census data? What are we looking at? Well, there's a great book. It's called Creole Race and Americanization. It's a. Um, Do you know who wrote it? Not it's a, it's a, a various um, oh, it's academics. A it's sort of a yeah. It's, it's like a collection of articles yeah. or a collection of articles. Yeah, like articles, but also it, it, they're long formed. I mean, mm -hmm. it's sort of it's just research that Maurice Conde Bell did a lot on sort of looking at Afro Creole influence in the colonial Louisiana. I forgot one of them talks about sort of um, what happens during uh, the eighteen you know really during the antebellum period and that relative. Right. They're looking at a lot of the economics, yeah. the population rise and falls, and so they yeah. probably cold census data and things like that. Yeah, and I think sometimes during this period, and this is where people go overboard, is they're at, they act as if the Creoles just sort of run into, you know, they're just gone by this period, and they're no longer influential. But that doesn't jive with what happens after the Civil War. The reality is there are still... Could use a jive. Yeah, tens of thousands of... Sorry. 
No, yeah. <laughs> there are still tens of thousands of Creoles, probably over 100,000 living on the Creole side of the city. Um, if they're still very economically influential, and the reality is they're you know, what running... What percent are they of the population at this point versus 1820s, 15? So, so when they... like we're, like Give you, you an you idea. idea so, of the percentage shift as they... Yeah. Were between when they set these laws and yeah. now when you're about to hit the Civil War. Yeah, so what you're watching, maybe a better way to market would be actually by looking at the Black Creole population because they represent yeah. 18, I think 10 or 20, they represent, they peak in 1820 at 38% of the city's population. Wow. Which means that along so with slaves, yeah, so if you have over slave, you know, if you count in the resident population that's slave and then you count in the Black Creole population, the vast majority of New Orleans in the 1820s is you know black, is you're talking like 70 80 percent like that high uh probably 66 percent normally it's so normal, basically two-thirds two-thirds of the city was you know was black uh, was black and so but if you mark so by 1840 the black creole population drops to about 29 percent, if i recall correctly and then by 1850 and this is where really immigration coming into the city is starting to change yeah. things they drop to like 18 percent and then by 1860 they're still be mindful that their raw you know their absolute numbers are growing they're growing into 20 30 but they're 40, not raising, 50 yeah, thousand but they're, they're not just not the they're level. not rising at the same level they're competing with anglo Americans yeah. who've gone there plus the influx Immig of more immigrants western europeans yeah. things like that yeah and so they actually by the civil war dropped to about i think it's like 6.5 percent of the city's you know population wow. but they are by that point because of the way that they had been accruing wealth and really building up fortunes, they are probably the single one of the single richest demographics in the yeah, city. Yeah, I was gonna say I wonder what percentage of the wealth they controlled at yeah, that point. A lot. And I mean there's by the eighteen fifties So black Creoles were the wealthiest demographic in the world. Possibly, yeah. It's you it's hard to get all of this, but right. let me give you an idea. Yeah, because yeah, you can't like So but let me give you an idea. So Baltimore during this period is a really unique city as well because it has a very large free black population owing to the fact that it's all along the border of the south and that you know you you're not you know within this you know within that area so baltimore's free black population by i think it was like the 1850s was twice the size of the free black population in new orleans be mindful that new orleans is still pretty unique among because it had such a large population but the free black population of baltimore owned 5.5 percent of the wealth that the black creole population in new orleans held so they are literally, you're sitting with each head of household paying hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes in the 1840s. Hundreds of thousands of taxes. Yeah. So you're talking dollars, sorry, hundreds millions dollars. upon millions of dollars owned by these families. In, in the 1840s, 50s, 60s. As they are now declining yeah. to about 10 to less Yeah, than as they're slowly declining yeah. as a whole percentage of the population. And, and this, this is... is at this point in time, what's New Orleans probably? Because I got to think, I got to think my numbers here. New Orleans was the eve of the Civil 1860 Wars. was like what 100 something thousand. Seventy four, yeah, yeah, about one hundred seventy four. Yeah. If you counted all of Orleans. Yeah, I was just saying. Cause I, I don't think we had a. So we were about million. the. Well, we were one of the largest cities. We're top yeah. ten cities in the United States. So we peak at night. We peak at number three in the United States, right behind Baltimore. In like eighteen forty, right? Yeah, and then we slowly decline, but we're still top five by I think yeah, eighteen sixty. I was gonna say because I remember reading yeah. stats like St. Louis and others are catching us. They're just within, growing very quickly. Yeah, and like this has to do with the twenty years or thirty years. It yeah. was like it, we just yeah. it just flipped on its head. Yes, but so 
you are able on the Creole side of the city in the 1840s, 1850s, as the Creole side, as the Creole population collectively is becoming much smaller percentage, they're still able to maintain power, but it's really, they're able to finally throw forth a new constitution, and it's around the 1850s, and then they're, they consolidate the entire city back into one because the, the system was so inefficient between having that three cities. Three they had three mayors and pretty much, and they, you know, I mean, it's just, it was a debate. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I, I remember reading about, like, there was one, say, yeah. black mayor in New Orleans, well, and it was like, well, because there was a black like, Creole mayor. Well, I don't, I, I'm not sure about that. I wasn't mean, there, but, wasn't there a black Creole? I'm almost, I'm almost maybe I'm, mis- I'm, I'm like, I'd put money that I almost remembered reading distinctly during that, when the city was broken up, um, there was, yeah. maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. You know better than I do. The fact that you're saying you're not sure makes me immediately go, eh, I could be making that up. (laughs) Well, but they're still, I mean, they're the, the, still the fact that you have public education. Right. To a certain degree. And there are a couple of the cool schools. Literacy rates. You say the literacy rates. That's what you're talking about. Yeah. And they, so, and the, and this has to do with a lot of people are being educated abroad and they come back home and they're building up their, you know, they're able to build it up. But so, this is where you really stand, and this is maybe a way to go segue into it. On the eve of the Civil War, as the institution of slavery across the South is being called, called into question, the Creole side of the city is declining, the American side of the city is growing, the free black population of New Orleans is disproportionately concentrated on the Creole side of the city. So as their relative wealth is rising, as their population is in fact declining as a percentage of population, the the situation is really it, it's not necessarily tenable like the, you're recognizing that this is you know the, the culture really does start to feel that it's you know under threat and they need to figure out a way to stop this right so insert the civil at war at some point you're like, you know, you're, at so, some point you only have so much legal yeah. protection yeah. it's going to be a de facto yeah. yeah so insert the civil war I, a lot of the records I was finding there's civil war are really interesting because the creole side of the city was very divided some people are very much in favor of the civil war leave and you know protect the institution of slavery some white creoles actually wanted to leave on the idea that france was actually invading mexico at this time and the thought was well if we join the confederacy maybe mexico will come back up and take us over and then there's an entire other faction that was just sitting there going this is not our battle let them bleed themselves dry and then we'll just sit down here because we don't really care and these voices get you know this big debate or early one was more um one was louder than the other or like where was this debate well, taking place? Because wasn't this a lot in the papers? You're it's in the papers. Paper, so right? I think the voice of moderation, of the voice of moderation was very, um, very, very, very key. I mean, that there was very strong. They had a lot of big, prominent figures in the city arguing against joining the Confederacy. One of them being the former senator Pierre Soulet, who was actually was ambassador to Spain, had come home. And he was very, they had these big conventions in the Opera House, which was really the focal point of the cult, you know, political and cultural space within Creole society. Where was the Opera House located? Well, there were two. There was the Teatro d'Orléans, which still stands on Orleans Street, right behind the cathedral. And then the French Opera House, which was on Bourbon Street and burnt down in 1918. Mm-hmm. And that had just opened in 1816. It was pure marble, very beautiful space. So it shows that they still had wealth and they were still invested oh, sure, within sure. the community. And so they were using the which opera so house were they using as the, the French Opera House? Okay. And so they meet in this space. So if you are allowed to be a political figure voicing against the Civil War, doing it in a public space, and having the entire room filled up, that says a lot about the dialogue that was happening. And I think that the if you look at the 
and you know, I was also reading on the English, you know, on the Anglo side of the city. You had a lot. You could read the newspapers. A lot of more of them were more gung ho about joining. Yeah, I was gonna say. I was actually about to ask. Did you find that the papers were flip were were um, particularly leaning towards one of the other? Like somewhere I was reading about strike narratives. It was very clear um, in New Orleans which which papers supported uh, collective bargaining and which ones were like anything that disrupts business uh, disrupts business bad. So like, did you find that? There yeah. were sides who were different very voices vocal. had different sides. I mean, the uh, it was like Le Abbe, Bay. yeah, the Abbe was kind moderate, of moderate, moderate. Well, they were saying, yeah, we might as well, we might do this, but you know, we need to really be mindful of the voices of dissent. You know, a lot of that. The interesting thing was, was actually having a lot of the embassies. New Orleans at this time has a lot of embassies uh, based within our at least consulates. And all of them universally, internationally, internationally. So France was saying you should not do this. Spain was saying don't do this, and they're very vocally, which was kind of an interesting side note. Which is also kind of funny because the French were invading Mexico. Well, my knee jerk, and this is my definite shot in the dark with fringe information. Here's my knee jerk to them, and correct me if I'm wrong, would be because. A lot of cotton export was coming out of us internationally. Yeah. So, do you think that they were like, "Oh my God, this would be bad for business"? I'm yeah, curious. I, I, I'm just curious I what you think, think they their motivation was. They didn't want was. their foreign nationals involved in the conflict. I mean, and that doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily. I mean, I'm sure it reflects the position of the government. But we all know that the French eventually came out and kind of were very sympathetic to the South. So, it might have been the evolution of their opinions over time. They might have just been saying, "We want you to be mindful that conflict will create problems." Or it will disrupt commerce. So, I would say, I mean, it's definitely self-interest. Yeah. It has to be self-interest. Yeah. But I was just curious where that motivation but, was. If you yeah. like gleaned anything from that, but yeah. that's kind of hard. That's all. Yeah. At that point, it's so speculative. I yeah. imagine you can really see an exact answer there. <laughs> yeah. And so Louisiana does go to war, and it you know it, the state secedes and it joins the Confederacy. Um, one of the interesting things is that they the the black creole militia which had been really out they had slowly phased it out in the 1830s 1840s but is really key to the initial identity of the community is actually recreated during the civil war briefly for the confederacy at first which to be honest with you i think most of the accounts i read is that the black creole community felt it had to create this militia under duress you're suddenly surrounded by this entire slaveholding society that is at war and if you're not going to play a game you as the free black community of the city are very very vulnerable especially if you're 6.5% of this greater city's population but what happens is early so Louisiana leaves in around January 1861 then we fall in 1862 very early and this turns the system on its head here to date in the Creole side of the city you have a completely different racial order you have a gradating racial structure whiteness and blackness Sorry, I was like press again. I can take are it. not divided upon a binary. They're they're understating that racial you know construction you know that it's just it's you're able what you are within the order is what you are. Now you have the Anglo society that has always assumed a racial definition. You know, if in slavery they assume a somewhat racialized definition of it. So when the system of slavery is overturned, it's not initially overturned in Louisiana because Lincoln says that you're allowed to keep the system for a little while. But it's becoming very clear that this system is about to collapse, especially once you get the Emancipation Proclamation and saying that the system, you know, as they understood, is going to be done. So the Anglo side of the city suddenly, you know, both racial systems, both the Creole racial system and the Anglo, you know, Anglo-American racial system are appended at once. And what's really, this creates a very fascinating stage and that's unique to Louisiana during Reconstruction. 
and it's that the black Creole community becomes incredibly active politically. And this comes at a point in which you, know, you have a population whose literacy rate is, 70, is something like 90% in 1870. And that's incredible. You're talking about among whites in America, it's about 50% probably if, and you're talking about because African Americans, especially those who were enslaved who are now free, it was around 10%. And so it just in it just you realize that this population just has a lot of wealth. It has a lot, you know. It, it, so education, the, property, education, <laughs> property. And so when the system and when the union is starting to you know put together the military government and then allows they recognize that Louisiana is a little bit different in the sense that there you can the the Black Creole community is having is actively arguing for political rights and wanting political rights and they have the language infused interestingly with french revolutionary ideals they start talking about things in terms of liberté égalité fraternité they they write one of these beautiful things by Camille Naudin which was a black creole who was black creole wrote the marseillaise noir the black marseillaise and it's about rising up the sons of africa rising up and it's set to the tune of the marseillaise so it's, it's instead of just being political activism that's sort of built into the United States, it's political activism that's coming from the idea of the Haitian Revolution from France and being infused with the idea of these revolutions. But even more interestingly, in some ways, is that when I was talking earlier about how Black Creoles became active, were being educated in France, there's an entire generation of Black Creole men who were educated during the Revolution of 1848 in France because they were studying in France. And the Revolution of 1848 is when France finally abolished slavery. So what they see as a moment in 1862 in Louisiana is it's our revolutionary moment to get rid of slavery and to finally live up to the ideas of the French and Haitian revolutions. So this is what's underpinning their political activism. And you can read their letters, and you can read, you know, read their op-eds, and you can read anything, and how they were trying they to construct... The extension of France is the actualization of French yeah. ideals. And a lot of them went up, the Black Creoles, an entire delegation went up and actually talked with Lincoln, arguing that it is illegal, we are a state again. We, we have opposed the South on this. Louisiana is a state. We are we as the black government of New Orleans, of Louisiana want a constitution and want to be brought back in. So right immediately, so as the South loses 1864, 1865, it falls apart in the South. The black Creole government's trying to become active uh, politically and they start to make huge strides, but then the weaknesses of reconstruction initially with the military occupation of the South as the United States moves towards reconciliation and the North really starts leaving Southern cities is you have this huge racial backlash against the black Creoles who are becoming active politically and African Americans who are in the government. And so you have these race riots, race riot after race riot in 1865-1866, which in light of a lot of them you know, across the South, re, you start build, rebuilding in uh, Reconstruction. But one of the things that the Reconstruction government does is it allows Black Creoles you know, further protection to start becoming more active politically. Now there is a, you know, there is a down, not a downside, but I guess really, a... Who was when you're saying that the U.S. government was aware of this, were you finding that 
like was the Louisiana was our senator sorry were our senators the ones who were communicating this how was who was like kind of observing this and dealing with Louisiana was there like someone kind of specifically dealing with us or was it that the general who's you know the the people who were down here militarily understood this military we did we did send two more was there actually a very unique interaction happening well we sent some congressmen back up to washington so they served out the government during the war and then we had a lot of the military governments down here were recognizing it because they're lobbying directly the military governments like nathaniel banks and a lot of the union generals down here and so what happens after you know you have the initial phase kind of collapses and then you have the reconstruction government come in and this becomes where you get a lot of the teeth behind the movement so black creoles really early in about 1867 passed this incredible constitution that if you were to look at it a lot of it was written the first version was partially written in french um, the you know a lot of the kind of unofficial anthem of the state at least one of the things I read said it, you know is essentially the Marseillaise and the state just this constitution is building into ideas of public rights so for in order to actually be treated equally you need to be enforcing you know you need to make sure that it's there's racism in society is not existent so you have the desegregation of streetcars mandated in it you have the public education of free blacks and black creoles and so you have this entire political movement that becomes really enforced because the reconstruction government makes it so that the former anyone you know who was formerly part of the confederacy cannot join so you have this entire movement and this is where the black creoles really align their political interest with the republican party of the north and that's a particular political development they choose as a means of survival and taking their broader political movement, attaching it to a national movement so that they can wield influence in Louisiana. But there's always going to be the problem is how does 6.5% of the population, you know, even as you know, influential as they are at a local level, you know, really wield power within the state legislature or even you know, in the government when you're that small, especially even as African-Americans who are now, many of whom, you know, there was a small, uh, relatively small, free black African-American population that did exist, but now the clear numbers are gonna be coming from the fact that Louisiana has a very large uh, black population as relative to state over 50%, and enslaved African-Americans are free. And a lot of them move down to New Orleans, so the numbers of the city grow drastically. I mean, to the tune of over 100,000 people moved to the city overnight. And that changes the demographics. Now you're, you know, dealing with not only a refugee crisis, but you're also trying to figure out how to structure your government, create a new constitution, and deal with racial violence. I mean, it was a very tall order. And the thing is, once they passed their constitution in 1867, this very French-inspired, and a lot of the ideas also coming from the Haitian constitution. It's a it's a big triumph for them because the community, the Black Creole community, because they're under incredible duress, but they're able to pass this document that is going to really, you know, the idea was you're going to really change the culture of the state. Now, the way that it happens is once you get really into the 1870s, by like 1871, 1872, when you're really reconstruction and the resolve for reconstruction starts breaking down, it's the race the violence starts erupting again. And the, the difficulty for the black Creole community was when they were had economic influence, but they did not have a political voice in the South during the antebellum period, 
white Creoles who still wielded political influence had an incentive to allow that space to exist just because for the broader community and the Francophone population, there was an incentive there. When you, the white Creoles lose a lot of their, just their, their wealth is obliterated by four-fifths, and that's with the ending of slavery because a lot of them are built into land-based planter aristocracy. And plus commerce was just completely, you know, just disrupted as the yeah, war continued. You didn't continued. lose your property, but you lost the ability to produce the product that was yeah. your bread and butter. And all the commerce was just ending at that period, just because, you know, the New Orleans was sort of isolated and you didn't have the markets. And so what the white Creoles lose a lot of their, they have very little political influence. They're not economically influential at all. And then you start having this tension within the community as black Creoles become active politically and they don't align their interests with the black Creoles because they're looking at the state and the racial violence and some of that racial violence starts being directed just at Creole society in general. So there a lot of the race riots just indiscriminately attack Creole you know, businesses and homes and you know this is a major problem, especially since where the reconstruction government met was on Canal Street in New Orleans, which is right on the, the divider. It's right on the border of where the um, you know, Anglo and the yeah it's, it's yeah. the Creole Anglo border. And the, it's a very clear that the Creoles are influencing the government during this period, probably disproportionate to their you know, relative influence on the state. So it kind of reverses a few decades of Anglo-Louisiana gaining power and controlling the state politically. So the problem is when you get to the 1870s, you know, really probably by 1872, 1873, the system starts to collapse. The Reconstruction government, you have a lot of infighting because um, – there's a leader, a black, um, an African American leader named uh, PBS Pinchback, who come, who's um, arrived with the Union Army. He becomes very influential within the Union ranks. His interests are not aligned with what Black Creoles want to do because Black Creoles also want to preserve their definition of race in the sense that they don't identify through the African American community. So they do. They want that gradating. They want so the gradating structure, and they're still trying to preserve. They're still trying to preserve their space as this sort of intermediary and just understand their community as you know the definition for itself. But they want to have political influence. They want economic influence, but they just don't want to be. They want to you know maintain their communal identity. And what they do is they actually try to start passing separate rights for Black Creoles. Well, if you're African American within the state, you that would raise very obvious questions where you're wondering, well, are these people really aligned with our interests? And so PBS Pinchback becomes a very vocal, not opponent, but they, there's a lot of contention. And again, these internal disputes are going on while you have this incredibly hostile, you know, statewide dispute about, you know, as racial violence throughout the state is starting to really, you know, it's getting worse and communities are being targeted. And you have a lot of race riots, um, and very large ones, in which one of them, the Metropolitan Riot in, I think it's 1868, you have you know, literally cannons being brought onto the streets of New Orleans, bombarding uh, black militias who are working under the Union Army. And so you can imagine these are not just, you know, isolated examples. That How did the, did the Union treat that as an attack on Union soldiers? Initially, when re when the Reconstruction was being really enforced through Washington, they did, and they would, they would go and there would be reprisals and they would, you know, quash different groups. But as the resolve point, of the yeah. North, especially in the early 1870s, really starts to, you know, degrade, you know, it just, the, the situation becomes untenable. 
it just it, it's collapsing. You've made all of these amazing political rights, you know, strides, but you don't ha you know, your your community is dealing with, you know, with hundreds of thousands of people moving into your community. You're dealing with how are you going to preserve your own restructuring niche, your entire economy, restructuring the economy, restructuring everything. Two different groups of black Americans who do not identify with each other and then with a wedge being driven deeper between them. Yeah. There's a lot going on. It's just a lot. I mean, it's, it's the difficulty of reconstruction during that period. And it's not. I mean, a lot of the solutions that they're coming up with are very innovative and they're trying to, you know, they were able to keep power. But it's really by 1875, 1876, and eventually this, like, the formal ending of reconstruction that the black Creoles are just pushed out of power. I mean, you just have, you have, you start allowing ex-Confederates to vote again. The white population is able to vote. They vote out black Creoles. Yeah. And then PBS Pinchback in this sort of interest. And then the Republican Party in the state has this huge infighting between two different governors. And you almost got to the point, I think it was Aristide Mary, who is a black Creole, almost became the official nominee in I think it was the 18 early 1870s so you could have had a black creole governor instead the population shifts and they vote for um a, you know a northerner who had moved down who was white but when the towards the end of that you know of the governor's term and I, I'm trying to remember um the exact name it's Kellogg it might be Kellogg governor Kellogg towards the end of his term he actually gets pushed out well, it might have been, it's one before Kellogg. But they get pushed out, and what happens when they push him out, you actually have PBS Benchback like become governor. Like he was governor. impeached? Impeached. Okay. By Confederates as they're moving back into the legislature. They actually vote him out, and they kind of, in this very odd political move, when they vote out the white governor, they actually let PBS Pinchback become the first African-American governor of the United States. And it's for a month. <laughs> but it's this very short period, but it's this really very interesting move during the reconstruction government as the systems collapse and you actually end up with the first african-american governor of the state now pbs pinchback recognizes that the situation is falling apart so he makes a deal where essentially he allows for segregation laws to start being passed in the 1870s and 1880s because he's still within the legislature as a senator he kind of makes this deal that we're going to pass a new constitution of 1877 if you give us a history you know, a black college which was southern university which was originally based in new Orleans. now the black creole community is livid at that because first of all a lot of them are educated in catholic schools and catholic university you know catholic higher education so it's not as necessary for them to have you know that school but if you're the african-american community you have no infrastructure for education creating a, a university is a big step so, but it's not in the incentive of the black Creole community to make that step, especially when they were the ones that, you know, that very, very. They basically don't, it doesn't benefit them. Yeah, and, and they were, their and mind, they were, in their minds, they don't see that, they yeah. don't see that, the, like, why, like, why are you sacrificing our rights? Yeah. Like, why are you making a compromise for us that doesn't benefit yeah. us? So, in the 1870s, 1880s, the system falls apart. You have the rest, you know, you have whites come back into power you have the you know in keeping with what's going on across the south they start passing race laws but what these race laws actually start doing is target the creole definition of race and they start eroding and taking away the you know the gradating racial structure so you're moving from tripartite to binary 
So three-tier to two-tiered system. So you're squeezing out the black Creole middle and saying you are either white or you are black. And the way that they do this, especially for white Creoles, is they, they start saying, well, white Creoles, if you are white, then what do you have to hide? Why are you not allowing this definition to move forward? Well, the thing is, as you're passing race laws that are restrictive, the stakes become high for the white Creole community because you are economically ruined, you are politically uninfluential, and you are a minor, you, know, you are just this very small group in your state now. And if they you redefine are in people's minds tied to black Creoles, yeah, to a certain degree. Okay, but just yeah, exactly. but exactly, you are a little you are you are Creoles, you aren't whites. Yeah, and so, so they start like, oh, we want questioning, binary, but you're not quite white, and the question is becoming yeah. like. Oh well, if they're not white, does that mean they're you know it's that, exactly it's that. exactly? <laughs> and if you start defining blackness as anything more than one sixteenth, then exactly. Well, this is this is honestly else. the intersection of where our I'm not going to go into my little train here, but this is where our theses kind of intersect. Because I was seeing with uh, my stuff is all about media portrayals of strikes in New Orleans in, at 1880, uh, 1881, 1886, and eighteen ninety two. And in eighteen ninety two, I remember very distinctly. There was, you start to see, no one was, there was a death that ended the strike. But violence, there were very, very specific targetings of people who identify as white Creole. And it was very, like, it was, there was all kind of violence against any, anyone involved in the strike. That, it got kind of out of control because literally 10% of the population was on strike. But um, it, it got to the point where I think this is where what you're talking about is coming to your head. Like, you're seeing this collapse, right? It's not like the fall of Rome was instantaneous, the collapse of Creole culture wasn't overnight. But you had a hundred something plus year old institution had suddenly, you know, come to a grinding halt in five to ten years. Yeah, it really did. Like you basically were like seeing this slow, all these old things happen, and then it really died yeah. off. And I think the fact that yeah. what you're talking about here with the white Creoles, where you're saying the idea that they not only do you have blacks and black Creoles are wedge driven between them, but now white Creoles are afraid to even identify as Creole. Yes, and they're trying to divorce us from being anything other than white, 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 white. Yes, exactly. And I mean, and this is sort of the, you know, when you look at it and you recognize during that period of the history how, I mean, within the span of, you know, really probably 15 years, you're living in a completely different, altered society. That, beyond just reconstruction. Yeah. I mean, the whole and time that, of the reconstruction is even beyond that. Because the black Creoles who had been active, and you know, there's this very strong tradition of Afro Creole or black Creole activism politically. And it comes to a head in the 1870s, where you know, 1860s and 70s, where they become they're able to put into literally decades and centuries of ideas of equality infused with the French, and they get it. They've passed their constitution. They get it, but then it's robbed from them. Their vaunted achievement is just robbed from them, their hands, and that's sad. I mean, it really is hard to you know when you think about that, and you probably had a constitution that might have been arguably the most progressive in our history <laughs> yeah just kidding in that way but it probably was for its time just an absolute say, remarkable you're, you're progressive like yeah for the period. relatively speaking yeah and granted a lot of the ones we passed until like the 1970s probably weren't or a lot worse but and then so but the black creole it doesn't just once reconstruction ends once they're pushed out of government their influence doesn't stop there. What they do in the 1880s and 1890s is they're pushing back, and they're pushing back very strongly. And this is sort of my how I tie up my ideas, and it's through the Plessy v. Ferguson case, which is Plessy v. Ferguson was in 1896. You know, 
1896, you know, they had the Plessy v. Ferguson case. Which a lot of people don't know that was specifically on a streetcar in New Orleans. In New Orleans. And it had to do with about respectability and the idea that, you know, you cannot segregate someone out and not have it still call them equal. And that has to do with the politics of respectability in the black real community. And so it doesn't move on their part to kind of regain yeah. rights. Yeah. And you're in even just not even regain it's maintain what you have because yeah. they're trying to push out and just slowly be able to find ways to segregate out the community and so Mike the conclusion of this is that you have the black real community create the committee de citoyenne the citizens community committee and they push forth this incredibly um, honestly it was a brilliant idea in terms of the Plessy v Ferguson case and try to get to the point where they can def- you know, stop segregation now the case starts in 1880, late 1880s, and then it goes until the 1890s, and then by 1890s, you know, they it goes before the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court votes against Homer Plessy, who was the defendant in New Orleans, who interestingly was, if I recall, he go, he went by Octoroon, which is one eighth black, which is a Creole racial classification. So the whole point is that you didn't and know. And he basically went onto a streetcar. They let him on the front because he looked white enough. And then he stood up and announced, I am black. Yeah, there's some varying the degrees. Was, yeah. He made it known. Well, like, he they, made they it known. He cared and, if he yeah. had sat in the front. And then he made it. They, they basically had a team. Yeah. This is a very planned, deliberate Very decision. planned, deliberate. They were like prepared to go into legal battles. Yes. Was not, this was not a spontaneous. And they had already done it once. And they had yeah. won, actually, interestingly, on interstate commerce. So they, the Supreme Court initially said you cannot segregate between states in a case uh, that actually the case was decided in Texas but Louisiana had put forth a case to the same thing it was actually um, another black Creole uh, who instigated that case and then when they won that they wanted to test on intrastate travel so they were going in Louisiana and that's when you had Homer Plessy and the problem is when the Supreme Court ruled against Homer Plessy deciding that any percentage of blackness defined you as black so in effect insti- you know, instituting a binary racial this decades thing that Scott's basically your whole thing's been about that yeah. we went from Louisiana's complex race gradient arguably trinary to ternary but just all this gradient to now supreme court level has said no that it's done yeah. you are white or you are black like if there was any idea that Louisiana's complicated yeah. racial structure existed supreme yeah. court basically squashed it yes and so the system, culturally it still and so the system maybe, but at this in point, Louisiana is basically yeah. dead, and Supreme Court had did nailed the. Yeah, coffin. and the and the culture is very holding on, just trying. But the, the days of you know Creole Louisiana are, are done essentially by this point because my a lot of what Creole identity is built into is its racial structure, and when you took away that racial structure, you separated out black and white Creole identities, and then you're segregating uh, black Creoles. Then the what the ideas and the premises on which Creole society were built were destroyed at least from a political racial level that doesn't mean that creole society ended i I am very very advocate that i think that creole identity still has a place within louisiana culture today i think that the language the people and there are ways that we layer identities that are important but i think that a lot of the political history a lot of the racial history has been omitted from the state of louisiana's history because of a deliberate political cycle that was trying to dismantle creole culture in the first place and it was a centuries-long process and it's not just this inevitable decline i think that's always important to understand it wasn't that you went from point a to point b and creole culture was always going to die dialectic exactly very easy to look in hindsight and say well this was inevitable and you looked all these pointing to it but what you're saying is that 
it's more circumstantial than inevitable. Yeah, and it's, it's just it's, a series of events happened, and they didn't have to play that way, but this is how it yeah. happened. And at different points, you could have had, I mean, honestly, in early Louisiana history, you could have had a large slave rebellion, like they had in 1812, and that would have... We didn't. That would have... <laughs> no, you had one, it just didn't... No, it wasn't successful. Like we didn't like you could have had a Haiti-style rebellion, and I can guarantee that the history of Louisiana would have looked very different had that been successful. You know, if you had in the 1840s, the Creoles just like kind of like say, nope, not going to be, you know, let Americans in at all, and push them out of the entire community, that could have been looking very differently. You could have had an internal civil war between Creoles and Americans much earlier. And at times it looked like it could have been that way. So I think that that's an important thing. And I think it raises questions for Louisiana's identity today. And as I mentioned last time, because of Cajuns, who are a separate French people in Louisiana, but they are also... Which we haven't even talked about. I know. Yeah, it's like, it's true. But because of Cajuns, and then you also (laughs) had Creoles as another population, Louisiana really until like the 1950s, 40s really spoke, you know, a lot of, a majority could speak French. So it raises the question, are we a Francophone society or are we an Anglophone society? And my premise is that we are a Francophone society that became Anglophone. But... If you look at our history over the course of 300 you know, years, then the last 60 years of our speaking English could change. And the way that we identify racially, the way that we have structural inequality can change. And I think that's something that's important that I think if Louisiana, with a lot of the problems that it has today, and I think Louisiana is known for many, you know, for its problems nationally, a lot of the ways, a lot of our elements of our culture are you know, celebrated and sometimes we don't always know what we're celebrating or where what we're celebrating comes from. And it oftentimes has to do with our culture and our radio, our sort of cosmopolitanism. But that is so built in to this Creole identity. It's built into our understanding that we are part of a larger world that is French, that is Caribbean, that is where people are coming in and that we share these histories, we share their food, we share their music, and that is still imprinted upon our culture today. And I think at times we feel it. And you know, during Carnival, you can't, you know, or during Mardi Gras, you cannot help but feel those roots and really understand that that is in so much of what we are. It's built into it. It's built into the simple Caribbean. gesture that on Bastille Day people raise the French flag, and like yeah. in some ways it's tongue in cheek, and not everyone fully gets the grab. You know, you can always argue like not everyone fully gets the symbols, but these actions and symbols still permeate our lives. Our lives. We still like just the fact that we have Mardi Gras. Yeah. That says a lot. Yeah. It does. What? And they, no one else like. There's no party like Mardi Gras. Yeah, literally. Like no one else <laughs> celebrates that like we do. And you could argue, like, there's parts of the Gulf Coast that have their own Mardi Gras. A tradition of it, yeah. There is a tradition of it. But the very specific nature of it here, it's a very, very French celebration in New Orleans. And it's even, and even Mardi Gras is built into the fight between Americans and Creoles. You know, Creoles have these long Mardi Gras traditions and balls, and then the Anglo-Americans want to be, you know, kind of trying to figure out how to, you know, build into the network of the city, start having perform parades on the streets and the creoles get angry at that and then the traditions get big you have creole balls and you have american balls and you have creole parades and you have american parades and stuff right there i mean this is so and you know and i understand that a lot of this might not necessarily make sense if you're you know not 100 percent from new orleans and all the culture but you can look from outside and you can look at the city and you can you can't help but feel that you know there's something else going on in new orleans and that what that culture is and i think my idea of it is that so much of that history is built into Creole society. It is built into a society that literally created our city. 
And with the absence of that culture, at least its history in terms of how we understand it to have played out, because I don't think that the history as we tell it is true. And I think there's deliberate reasons for that. We lose a lot of who we are today, of, of what our identity is, you know, of why we have structural inequality, of why we have structural racial inequality, about why the economics, you know, are, are you know, at times in New Orleans, are just it's not competitive at times, but also why we have we are able to adapt, why we are resilient, and why, in my mind, we will be here even despite a lot of the odds that we face geographically, you know from a lot of standpoints the city survives it endures it builds and it, at times it fi it finds a way to thrive and that is in part i think built into you know a very complicated tumultuous but beautiful beautifully chaotic culture that is the city and what in particular is it's our creole history <laughs> As no, I was just, no, that was fantastic. I mean, and, and, and I guess the last thing before we wrap this up, I want to ask you is that okay? And I think I know the answer to this, but I'd love to hear in your words. I've just read your thesis. I've read an article by you on this subject. I've heard it talking to you about this subject. Whatever you know, I've, mm -hmm. I, I have taken your argument here and your whole story and consumed it in some way. Maybe it's this podcast. What's my call to action? The lovely buzz turn that yeah. everyone knows what what's next what do i do as a new orleans citizen as an american or even beyond what what's next and it could be simple as like is this just do you think the answer is that it informs our understanding of history or do you think there's actually a call to action well one of the stories i give and i was asked this very directly deliberately while i was turning my thesis and what i began just by saying the classic who gives a shit question yeah exactly right <laughs> But I was at Loyola University in high school, and we were at this, it was a multiculturalism conference, and I just happened to, you know, I was just going because for my high school. And I remember there was this girl who, you know, a student from another school um, in New Orleans, and uh, we were talking about what do we identify racially, culturally, and one of the girls went, well, I'm African American, but I, I, I'm Creole. And so she's layering her identity. She's African American and How Creole. Old she? she we, I mean, what would we have been, like 16, 15? Yeah. Then? That we were junior year in high school. So she layered her identity, and that's a specific evolution of Creole identity, black Creole identity in the 20th century, that it became part of the African-American community in, in, in important ways, you know, and that was part of how it preserved. But I remember the, the moderator turned around to her and went, oh, no, no, I'm asking you about your race. That's a colonial identity. very powerful statement to tell someone that your identity is wrong and your your this is something that doesn't belong to you because it's colonial but it's not colonial it, it's it has its own history within our state and i think one of the call to action is just to understand what it means to understand how people are layering their identity in creole culture and also to acknowledge and recognize that creole culture is not dead it's alive it's here there are people who identify through it and they are you know this is important to a lot of people even if you know they don't and I, it's not a call to say that people must identify as creole and let's all identify as creole because it's just not that would be artificial but the reality is that we need if someone does identify as creole we need not say that your identity is wrong 
because they have a history that they they have a history and they have an identity that is proud that is long and that is literally built into the fabric of the city so that would be my first thing is just to understand how that culture survives endures and how people identify through it even to today the second thing is to have a little bit of a more conversation that <laughs> stop blending Cajun and Creole. I mean, Cajun is a wonderful culture into its own, but all things that are Creole are not Cajun. All things that are Creole, Cajun, you know, Creole are not Cajun. Yeah, you know, Cajun or Creole. You know, it works both ways in the sense that these are two separate histories. They have different food ways. They have different music, and they interact with each other. That's true. And even from a purely marketing and public interest standpoint, we always exactly. trumpet Cajun. We and that's Cajun and we do it oftentimes by using Creole. You know, like Creole food or Creole music, and it's 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 unfair. I mean, it's it's just like <laughs> it's just not fair to the community. As I said, there is so much that's built. You could argue jazz Cajun. is very closely tied to Creole. Versus it is. I mean, a lot of the first bluegrass and folk comes out. A lot of the first, um, you know, Creole music. Oh, well, jazz Satchel, musicians. Satchel called himself Creole, didn't he? No, but he had, he's around. Jelly Roll Morton did. And a Jelly, lot of sorry, 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 sorry. Yeah, Sidney Bechet very clearly, and the whole a lot of that has to do with I mean, like I mean, jazz is built into a lot of Creole music, and it, it's a confluence, and it's also a lot of African American music that was around New Orleans at the same time. But it comes from the fact that with segregation, you had Af you know African Americans and Creoles living in the same space, and that the the music that comes out of it with ragtime, and you have you know all sorts of different music at that time produces it. But a lot of the early jazz ballads were in French. And that's because in New Orleans, the Black Creole community spoke French. They spoke. Um, but I think that's another. I mean, so understanding that in the Louisiana has a cultural economy, you sometimes just want the three, you know, three second sound bite that you can project to the country. But it's not fair to the Cajun community or the Creole community to just blanketly Blanket, call yeah. them and just never differentiate and never really understand that identity. Yeah. And my last point would just be to understand that. We in Louisiana a lot of times speak nostalgically about our French culture while simultaneously, I think, deriding people who maintain it. That we, It's like everyone has a grandparent that spoke French, but why don't we speak it? And I understand context is everything. You need, a, you need to be able to walk into a business and speak it, otherwise you're just sort of artificially propping up language. But... I think that there is still, there are still hundreds of thousands of people in our state, at least by the last since there's like 200,000 or 170,000 that still speak it. You know, there are... we Which is substantial. It's still, yeah, that's still a substantial number. I mean, and, that, and we need to stop. If someone speaks French, we need to say, this is the language of our state. This is a legitimate language of our state. And you have a right to speak that language. And we're not going to, you know, just say, speak English. Because at the end of the day, if you say that... You're, 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 you're reinforcing the problem. And that is a lot of our history, a lot of our literature, our music, our, you know, all of this was written in French. A lot of it was. Yeah, if you and believe if you, in cultural uh, yeah. Just preservation, yeah. it's, it's, it's important. And if we lose French, and I'm talking Creole French, you know, which is historically spoken by a black Creole community and other parts of the state, the prairie, you know, and if you lose Cajun French and you lose French, <laughs> You know, as Parisian French. Parisian French was also spoken here. Kind of <laughs> if you lose these languages, you're losing, you're disconnecting ourselves from a lot of our history. So I think we now, and it's not that I want every single person to go walk into the streets and you know suddenly learn French and you know will no. magically turn into Quebec, but it's just the idea that we can preserve the space, we can teach our literature, and we can 
actively encourage people who want to learn it to learn it. And you know, and recently there's the you know Council for the Development of French in Louisiana. It's like Codafil, and Codafil was started to help preserve the language in the late '60s. There was a big movement among Cajuns to preserve the language because they recognized that they skipped a generation due to discriminatory practices against them. And but the problem is today, in keeping with what Louisiana does a lot today, is we threw Codafil into our tourism department. What a slap in the face that we're not we're not even going to recognize that the French pre- preservation is a cultural force into it's itself. It's localized. It's we're going to make it for tourism. Yeah, that's offensive. And I think at the end of the day, we need to be thinking about you know French education, and we've done a lot of that. Charter schools, a lot of French schools, immersion programs have started. You know, we can encourage that. We can send children if the children don't want to learn French, and they don't want to learn French, and let them <laughs> speak English. But we can start really reinserting. You want to the create context. the apparatus institutions for people to pursue these cultural yeah. identities yeah. to to not discourage, not yeah. force people to do it. But you want to people who are thing you want to encourage that cultural representation yeah. and teach them the history so that they know that they have a proud and long legacy that they too can you know build into and understand their identity through. They don't have to identify through it, but I think that if it becomes at least part of their identity or they you know promote it. Then that there's will a be, basis. Then there's a basis to protect that, yeah. and I think if that becomes the case, and I there's think we can preserve this for future generations. I think also it's important, like this kind of goes into reconstructing stuff. I think understanding our Creole identity is instrumental, and in, like we're still, you know, 150 years after the Civil War, we're still dealing with problems of race and still trying to understand racial relations. And I think a lot was learned through our Creole identity. A lot was learned during these tumultuous periods that when you tear it down and forget it you lose the lessons we learned. I think Louisiana, the lessons that other states are learning don't necessarily apply here fully. I think understanding our individual history with race relations helps us create a better day for, for race yeah. relations here now. And that, that's that was a very I mean, convoluted ending there, but you see yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, glad we got to talk about this. <laughs> Same. Serious subjects, man. It's thank you, Scott. This is this is fun. To those of you listening, I'm glad you're also interested in this. And I think this is I think Scott's work, and this is uh, everyone knows this is sincere because I'll be the first to rip on Scott and and and, <laughs> and make some jokes. But this is I honestly think this is incredibly important work, and and not to toot my own horn, but I remember when you first started talking about this project, and I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And then within like when you started to really get into it, develop it, and you're going to France, I remember starting to read your first drafts and first papers related to this subject, and I was like. I was like, Scott, this is unbelievable work. Like, this is this is not like, oh, good undergraduate work, good way to use primary sources. This is like, oh, um, I think there there are PhDs who wish they were writing about this subject because the fact is, like, you actually have an argument that's not just compelling and not just relatable, um, but it's very unique. There are people writing about Creole, like this is not a hardcore touched concept right now. There are not that many books that I can list that really get into this. You see a lot of articles, but I think this is amazing work, and I think uh, you're you're doing a service. I think if you don't get something published, you it's because you didn't try hard enough. <laughs> well, that's why I love a lot of opportunities. Uh, you know, you know, you know what I'm saying. It's like I no, just yeah. I just think you've got right. such an amazing concept here, and I'm excited to yeah. see what you do with it. No, it makes people excited. I mean, I don't want to obviously throw out all these facts and all this information if you don't have all the context. It's you know, it's hard to piece all what's going on together. But what I hope it does provoke is this: the idea that well, it points up for someone to get every single yeah. word of it. I don't but get every single word of it. Right. But you're 
you're making your points, and the thing is, it, it leads to further inquiry. Exactly. You know. Right. Thank you, Scott. Absolutely. Well. Right, and uh, cheers. Cheers.